second semester feeling going on. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word there in front of you, I invite you to go to uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, um, the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, just by uh, way of saying thank you. Uh, I was overwhelmed on my birthday to receive so many kind messages from you all. I haven't even finished reading them just because it takes time, because you are kind and it means a lot to hear that from you. Don't understand, I think, really what an encouragement it is to hear from you, how the Lord is using our ministry or even in some small ways using me to, to help you grow in the Lord. So I just want to say thank you for those and um, excited to continue our series looking at cults tonight. So we're in uh, Psalm 119 tonight. If you would stand with me as we uh, pay honor to uh, the reading of God's word. Tonight will be Psalm 119, and you can make your way to verse 97 of that psalm. So if you flip over a couple pages, or I guess if you are there with a di digital device, you'll scroll or swipe over there. And tonight we're going to look at Scientology. So uh, take a look at that together. So Psalm 119 Verse 97, we'll start with God's word tonight. So this is the word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your precepts I get, or through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. So this is God's word, and you can be seated, and we'll pray together this evening. Father, we come to you right now, ever aware of our tendency to look to ourselves to guide our lives, ever aware of our tendency to be prideful, ever aware of our tendency to sin, to seek our own way, to try to... Uh, take your rightful spot in our lives. Father, no doubt tonight with a crowd this size and uh, different people from different backgrounds or maybe even those who are hearing my voice right now that have never submitted to you to be the Lord of their lives. So as we come to you tonight, Father, and we're going to look at another uh, belief system, a cult, if you will. And Father, we need your help to not be prideful, to not be arrogant, to not be casual in the way that we interact, but to boldly proclaim truth in love, all the while learning why it's so important to know the difference between what your word says and what others will say. And Father, we're aware tonight we're not the only people who are doing this. We're not the only church in town. We're not the only people who, who know and have heard the gospel. And so we think of our friends around the city, think of our friends at National Heights Baptist Church under uh, the, the ministry of Vaughn Roberts there and ask that you would bless their ministry, allow them to grow, to be uh, strengthened, to uh, proclaim the gospel. Think of our, our friends at uh, Park 
Crest Baptist Church. They dubbed Paul Ebert the college pastor, Blake Housley the student pastor, and Phil Housley their pastor. We ask that you would allow them as they they strive to reach people with the gospel in their part of the city. God, we desire uh, the welfare of the city above our own welfare. God, help us to not be prideful people who think that Crossway is better than other people. We have been blessed to have a great church, but we are no better than any other people gathered there. So be with us now as we turn our attention to your word and thinking about what it means to engage with those with different belief systems. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we know uh, maybe some of you know Scientology. Maybe some of you have never heard of Scientology. More often than not, our tendency is to get Christian science and Scientology uh, mixed up. Uh, Scientology is actually founded by a man named L. Ron Hubbard in 1953. And his central uh, claim to fame in founding uh, Scientology is he wrote several books. uh, Primarily the ones that he's known for is Dianetics, the Study of Scientology, and Scientology, the Fundamentals of Thought. Hubbard states this, and this is what's going to be key to our understanding of Scientology, that the goal of Scientology is to put man in a mental condition where he can solve his own problems and conditions. So Scientology is all about getting your mind in a mental state where you can solve your own problems. Scientologists, when asked what the structure of their organization is like, compare it to that of the Catholic Church, but it's much more restrictive. Uh, It includes the Sea Organization, which is located primarily in Clearwater, Florida, and the Mother Church of Scientology is located in Los Angeles, California. Scientology currently is run by a man by the name of David Miscavige. Uh, You may be familiar with some things about Scientology as a result of, um, in the last three or four years, Leah Remini's show on A&E for three seasons, Scientology in the Aftermath. Um, so, with that in mind, I want what I want us to do tonight is just what we've done every other week, and that's to look at what are the key distinctives and differences between Scientology and Christianity, where would we say this is our main point of conflict? And so we start in Psalm 119, verse 97 tonight, because the first place we're going to start to talk about when it comes to Scientology is dealing with the issue of authority, dealing with the issue of authority. Scientology looks to L. Ron Hubbard's books, Dianetics, and his other work as authoritative. In fact, in Scientology, one of the requirements for every member is that they must uh, have the complete works of L. Ron Hubbard, his books, his audio lectures, anything that he has ever written or talked about or produced, they must have all of those. And um, they're constantly being updated, constantly being changed. And every time that they're updated and changed, every member in Scientology is expected to buy the whole set again. So the set tends to run about $4,000 at a time. Um, So you think college is expensive, being a Scientologist is more expensive. It's worth noting, though, that outside of his works in Scientology, 
Hubbard wrote many more books than just the Scientology text. In fact, he wrote, it's estimated, around 200 fictional novels. So Hubbard is an author extraordinaire. You say, David, why are we starting with the issue of authority? Well, I want to take you to Psalm 119 because in Psalm 119, what the psalmist tells us is how we should approach Scripture. So let's start at the top and work our way back through it again. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Christians look to Scripture and meditate it on it, should be meditating on it, all the day. Inside of Scientology, you meditate and think through all the day of L. Ron Hubbard's writings. In fact, it's well documented that many of the courses that Scientology um, offer and require of their members makes it a requirement at times when you're taking those courses to be involved reading, writing, and thinking through these texts from somewhere at around 8 a.m. to 10 o'clock at night for multiple weeks, seven days a week. Scripture says, the psalmist says, that we should love meditating on God's word. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. Christianity is saying, God's word makes me wiser than my enemies. Scientology says, Hubbard's writings make me wise. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. The psalmist is saying, God is teaching me how to live. Scientology says, L. Ron Hubbard are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Scripture guides the way of the believer, the Christian, the Christ follower. L. Ron Hubbard directs the way of the Scientologist. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word for the Christian lights the way they should go. For the Scientologist, Hubbard's writings light the way that they should go. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. Christians are committed to or should be committed to keeping God's word. Scientologists are committed to keeping L. Ron Hubbard's word. You say, this has become highly repetitive already in your first point. And the reason is this, because the ultimate question that comes to when we deal with authority is, how are we going to decide or who is going to be the authoritative voice for our lives? Who's going to tell us how we should live? Francis Schaeffer did a uh, documentary series in the uh, late 70s called How Then Shall We Live? Asking, how are we going to live? Who's going to be authoritative? Side plug, that documentary series is available on Amazon Prime for free if you have it. Schaefer is asking the crucial question, how are we going to live? How are we going, what's going to give us our authority? Who's going to tell us what we should do? Schaefer ultimately points back to the authority of God's word. So I'm going to ask you this tonight. 
what grounds the authority of your life. Where you are in what you're dealing with, whatever it may be, from your grades to your boyfriend, your girlfriend, to uh, the situations you find yourself at work. What is seeping into your life that is directing how you're going to live? And I'm going to suggest, in fact, I think the word of God suggests at a very strong level that for you to rest in anything other than his word will ultimately lead to you falling short in life. Because the only thing that will satisfy you is living a life for God's glory. That's the only thing that can satisfy. A life that's in line with his word. Oh, to be at the point that we as Christians would say about God's word that his words are sweeter than honey to our mouth. That we would delight in his law and that, according to verse 97, it would be our meditation all the day. But how do you determine what that authority will be? What gives your authority credibility? What is it that gives L. Ron Hubbard his authority to say, live this way? His own writings? And how do we know what is inspired of Hubbard? A man that's written over 200 fictional books, but out of those two, we find two authoritative texts for how we're supposed to live our lives? What about the other fictional works? Why are his works, those two, not to be put in the same category as the fictional writings and to that the only answer that Scientology is able to give is because that's what L. Ron Hubbard said I don't know about you but I've about tired with the man-made religions of the world about the idea that somehow some way you and I must submit to another human being I've been around enough human beings in only 30 short years of this life to know that they are terrible guides I know that as a pastor even, I at times, many more than even probably I'm aware of, am a terrible guide or a terrible savior for you to look, to say, put your hope and faith in David Bott would be the greatest lie that you could believe for something to save yourself. And I just want to simply say to you as a Christ follower, don't soft Peddle God's word as being authoritative. You say, what does that mean? Well, I would say, don't act like it's authoritative when it convenient feels it's authoritative. Don't turn into a soft version of the prosperity gospel to say, I'll believe God's word as long as it makes me healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or I'll take the parts that I like. You know, Thomas Jefferson, no Scientologist, he was, in fact, probably an atheist at best, was probably the most honest man about his understanding of Scripture. You see, if you were to grab Thomas Jefferson's copy of God's Word, he had cut out all of the different passages with a small penknife that he didn't agree with in Scripture, and he left the ones that he was okay with. Now, there's a man who's at least honest enough to say, I'm going to follow the things that I like and not follow the things that I don't. Unfortunately, we have many Christians who do that mentally while masquerading that they're not doing it physically. 
I think I need to be because I think in the sense that we talk about God's word and its authoritative nature for our lives, we all can rally behind it. And Christians are really good at rallying behind strong doctrinal positions. It's basically, forgive the illustration, but for me to get up here and preach hard about believing in the authority of the scriptures to a group of committed Christ followers is the same as a Republican getting up and saying, we're going to cut taxes. Of course people are going to applaud. They all believe it in the room. But it's what you do after you leave the room that defines whether or not you actually believe in the doctrinal position. Because everybody can applaud authority in here, but on Monday morning, not letting corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth tends to be a little bit harder for us to wrap our mind around that that means authoritative. Or he that loves his life will lose it for my sake tends to be this crop makes too much sense for me. I want to feed my flesh. So I want to say to us tonight collectively, again and again, for the remainder of our time in this series, when we come to different doctrinal positions and we start to talk about they believe this and we believe that, yeah, but do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? Has it moved from your head to your feet? Because until that's happened, you don't really believe it just something that you can recite for a quiz or a test or maybe if you're fortunate enough to answer correctly on a Jeopardy show or who wants to be a millionaire. I'm always shocked at the amount of people who are secular that know a lot about the Bible on Jeopardy and they look like Christians who know a lot on Monday but they don't live in accordance with it. The second area that I would want to take you to, we'll go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We'll head over and flip over, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2, as we see a, a key difference between the way that Christians understand who and what makes up man and what Scientologists believe. So if we're going to flip over to that Pauline epistle, Colossians, we've studied it together inside of our college ministry. If you weren't here for that, we're in the process. We... If you go to iTunes right now and you type in Crossway Crave Sermon, uh, we have one sermon up. It's from August of last year. We're getting there. So we're, we're approved. We're in iTunes and we're making it happen. Colossians will be up there shortly after we upload all of 2018, get into 2019. And then we'll get to our Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian Science. You'll be able to tell your friends, hey, you want to hear about this? go and talk. I'm not really excited about um, Scientology because that will label me a suppressive person according to Scientology, but hey, I've been called worse than that. Colossians 2, let's look at verses 13 through 15. Again, this is God's word in you. Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. In Scientology, man is considered to be a satan or a spiritual being, and their primary problem 
is that they lost awareness of their true identity as a spiritual being. Scientology affirms this idea of man, that reincarnation um, happens, and when you begin to believe in reincarnation, you downplay your life in this life because really your mom's not your mom, your dad's not your dad, and your dog's not your dog because in the afterlife you're going to come back and live another life. So Scientologists, because of this, downplay personal responsibility and the familial unit. In fact, in Scientology, it's not uncommon for parents to very rarely see their own kids. The great problem plaguing man, according to Scientology, is this uh, thing called engrams, not enagrams, but engrams. Uh, those of you who like enagrams, I don't know what to do with them, but engrams is not what we're is what we're talking about in Scientology. These are different types of sensory impressions that are stored on your mind and that cause various emotional and physical symptoms. Basically, everything that bad that has ever happened to you emotionally or physically in Scientology is the response of an engram. And you've got to have somebody help you figure out what the engrams are and they have to be taken care of if you have any hope of being set free. And so they have these different levels that you're going to need to be cleared of. And so we find ourselves here completely opposed, again, to Scientology. Not just primarily opposed or kind of opposed. We're completely opposed to this insanity. Go back to Colossians 2, verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. We are, according to Christianity, hopelessly condemned by sin and are incapable of setting ourselves free from that sin. It must take a divine act of some kind to set us free. There's no amount of work that you and I can do to clear up the sin that exists in our lives. We don't church it up by calling it a different name. We haven't come up with a different principle for it. Sin is what condemns us to an eternity separated from God. Furthermore, we believe that all of humanity sits condemned. You, me, like the, um, the, the Blues Brothers used to say, everybody needs somebody to love. You, me, them, you, everybody. Inside of Christianity, everybody stands condemned. You, me, them, me again, you again, everybody, everybody is condemned. You say, why do you make this point so, so, so over the top? Because I, the fundamental flaw facing humans in general is that we all misguidedly believe that we're better than we really are. We fundamentally believe that there's something inherently good in us that makes us good people. Christianity teaches the exact opposite of this. There is something fundamentally good about us, namely that we're created in the image of God, and because of that we have worth, dignity, and value. But in who we are as a person, there is nothing good in us. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in the book of Romans. He says that you and I will scarcely die for a righteous man, let alone an unrighteous man. If we're not willing to die for unrighteous people, how
house can be claimed to be good. Doesn't a good person lay his life down for anyone, regardless of who they are and what their makeup is and what describes them and their personality? Didn't make the joke about enneagrams. Doesn't a two die for a five and a seven for a four? I have no idea what that means. I've never done that, but it's really easy to just throw out numbers to make that illustration. So it's an easy illustration to use for all of us. Paul says this is incredibly crucial. We don't ever die for another. You say in here in the comfort confines of this room, yeah, I was going to kill the Lord for anybody. Really? Anybody? A serial killer? You have a bullet for a serial killer? Somebody that rapes another person? Jump in a bullet for that person take the spot of a convicted felon that's going to be put to death on death row you're willing to flip spots with them and if you right now are going yeah that i would do that you're a liar you wouldn't otherwise you already would this is man's problem we think that we're better than we really are. And inside of Scientology, the great human problem is that we need to be cleared or set free from this problem of these engrams, these memories and the bad stuff that's ever happened in my life. That if I just get clear of that, you know what's amazing is I think Christians struggle with this idea, too. If I can just get over the bad stuff in my life, I would be OK. Simply not the case. And I think if we really viewed humanity as being utterly lost in sinfulness, it would press us as we think about how we even gave somebody a piece of the gospel. Do you really? If the person that is sitting next to you right now, let's get away from the campus and the hypothetical person in Chem 102 that you sit next to every day and I talk about every week here. Let's just talk about in here right now. If the person sitting next to you, you really believe is dead in their trespasses and sins, and there's nothing that they can do to save themselves outside of the work of Jesus Christ, would you not be compelled to share that message with the person sitting right next to you tonight? Because technically, Probably the person you're sitting next to, you're far more emotionally involved in than the person that you sit next to in your Chem 102 class. Pretty good best friends, aren't they? Best friends, best friends. The people I hang with. <laughs> right? But completely. Would you tell them? Do you care enough about them? Why are they worth more to you than the people around you in the world? Because we're investing. Let's do that differently. So that points to a question of how do you view humanity? Do you see them as being dead? That's what the Bible says. That's what I say. It's not like you're dead. The Bible says that. Or ultimately self-reliant. Oh, let them figure it out for themselves. Again, Romans, you're like, well, you keep talking about Romans. Because I'm getting ready to preach next week on brain. And you guys are talking about brain all the time. Scientology and Romans is like flashing in my head. I don't want to be in there. And let me throw in what we're doing for the retreat. And I can't tell you the supplies. It's just like a war up there. 
mental space. I'm worried about the Cardinals. It's just craziness. It's nuts. But Romans makes this clear too. They're dead. And they're not going to go looking for God on their own. A Scientologist is not going to wake up one morning going, I need more Jesus any more than the atheist does. Neither of them go searching for God. So this view of man inherently tags into the final point, which is what do we believe about salvation? What does Scientology believe about salvation? Well, we're going to go back to a very basic text. Back to the basics, my friends. Ephesians chapter 2. If you've grown up in Awana, you know where I'm going. Even if you haven't grown up in Awana, you probably have a good idea of where I'm going. Ephesians 2, and we'll read verses 8, 9, and I'm going to throw in 10 for fun. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Scientologists claim that one can be set free from the destructive engrams is through the process what they refer to as auditing. With the help of an auditor and sitting at an e-meter that has two cans that runs a low current electric uh, electricity through your body, about one and a half volts. They can pinpoint the areas, supposedly, that need to be, quote, unquote, cleared. Auditing is incredibly expensive. It costs, after you do a couple, three times, it's about $800 an hour. And so in order to continue on towards total clarity from engrams and freedom from the engrams and being mentally in a place where you can get to that spot that L. Ron Hubbard is talking about, You have to get help with the auditing by taking the courses, which cost more money. And to go on from the free analyst to the ultimate mind clarity, or what is commonly referred to as Satan 8 level, costs $365,000 to $380,000. Here's the knuckleball, though. No one ever goes straight from level 0 to level 8. They're always constantly finding new stuff or rewriting old stuff and sending you back. Watching an episode of Leah Remini's Scientology in the aftermath, one particular lady who had gone Satan level eight twice had spent over half a million dollars to get there. She isn't rich. She's not Tom Cruise or John Travolta. She's not Leah Remini or any other celebrity that gets into Scientology. This is a regular person like our adult leaders in our college ministries, had spent a half a million dollars. This is on average what it costs. And there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that will, that will spend this type of money to achieve that level of Scientology. This is the complete opposite of what Christianity teaches. Christianity says you can't earn it. You can't spend enough money. You can't do enough. You can't clear enough to be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Here's the problem with Scientology. You clear you. 
you get yourself to a mental level, you do the work. Beloved, if you're trusting in yourself to save you, you have spent eternity separated from God. Because I try to trust myself to work my way to help you, to be good enough, to reach whatever mystical, God-level-like space that exists. I will spend eternity separated from God forever. One of the greatest lies that Scientology tells is that L. Ron Hubbard, when he died of a stroke, went to Satan level nine, which is a level that no one else was able to get to but him. Beloved, outside of L. Ron Hubbard repenting of his sins and putting his trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sins, he will spend eternity in a literal, eternal conscious torment called hell. And so, as we think about concluding our time together this evening, what are you relying upon to save you in this life? You may say, David, I'm not trying to, I'm a college student, you know I don't have that kind of money, you know, something like that, you know. Yeah, but you might be sitting here doing the same card tricks in just with different cards. You think that by showing up here, going on a couple grow visits, going to a Bible study or two, singing with your hands up, looking like you should know Jesus is enough to save you. It's the same song and dance. It's a different verse. It's the same outfit. It just looks different. Like you're doing the same thing. And I just want to encourage you, don't rely on yourself. You cannot, will not be able to save yourself. gets this, the Pharisees and religious rulers in trouble in John 2. In John 3, they come out to John and John's like, look, y'all are basically empty tombs. You're painted up real nice on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. It's kind of a nice way to greet people who come out to observe the way Jesus preached, but John the Baptist, living in the wilderness, camel hair, wild locusts behind him. All natural locusts, right? You couldn't get one kid. thing that was incredibly challenging and incredibly disheartening to think about. There are people who are willing to spend half a million dollars to get themselves to eternity. And they can't cross the street unless it looks like Jesus. You may not have much money, but every penny that we can scrape together to send missionaries around the globe helps one more person in an unreached people group or a place where ministry is difficult be able to hear about the gospel. But we're like, I don't have enough money to give to missions and eat out at Taco Bell three times a week. Again, we see people who are far more committed to the lie than they are to the truth. That's got to start to sting us at some level. It's stinging me every week. And I'm going, how can we give more? How can we do more? What do I need to I'm like sitting in my office today trying to just text people and encourage them. Hey, come back, come back, come back. 
I don't know what their eternal state is. I don't know when there's a visitor here, if they know Christ or don't. I want them to come back. But I also don't just want them to come back. I want to start engaging with people in the world around them. I want to start talking to them about what it means to follow Christ. I want to do things for them because somebody can go to the right answers if they know Jesus. Like it's some sort of test. Some of you faked your way through high school on test day, but if you were to ask this question, you have no idea. But in a minute, your teachers are like, so smart. Well, no, because everyone's going to know it. That's what some of us are doing with religion in this world. Masquerading our religious faith by being people that claim to obey God and follow Jesus. 